0: This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. You're listening to Most Innovative Companies. I'm Josh Christensen. Today, we have another panel from Fast Company's 2022 Innovation Festival this past September in New York City. The panel is called In Defense of Stakeholder Capitalism, featuring Dan Schulman, the president and CEO of PayPal, and Lynn Foster de Rothschild, founding and managing partner of Inclusive Capital Partners. Enjoy. I'd like to start by asking you just a table setting question. Uh, It's been three years since the Business Roundtable issued its statement, redefining the purpose of a corporation to serve all stakeholders, Uh, employees, customers, suppliers, um, communities, uh, not just shareholders. Um, Broadly speaking, how would you both characterize the success of the movement during those three years? uh, And where do we find ourselves now? Lynn, why don't you start? Age before beauty.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
2: I didn't... We didn't have a dress code memo, you see, (laughs) so he's the cool kid and I'm 1980s Park Avenue, so I I, I apologize! We need a theme. Can you, like, you briefly I'm like 1995,
0: <laughs> you know, student shirt guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So sorry. We'll get that right next time. Um, and it is nice to be back because both of it us is. were at the last time that this uh, conference met in person. So it's so thank you. Um, thank you. the famous BRT letter. Um, I remember the day, well, I remember getting some calls saying something really big is going to happen. It's going to make you really happy. And it did make me really happy. Um, I thought it was a a great statement. Um, In an ideal world as I see it, it would be better if capitalism didn't need a qualifier that if capitalism were simply understood to be, was simply understood to be a system that creates broad-based prosperity. Um, But the truth is that pretty much since the eighties, that sense of broad-based potential for anyone who believed what I did growing up, which is in America, you work hard, you play by the rules, and you can go as far as your dreams take you, because this is America, and America is, is, a, is a, its form of great capitalism, uh, you realize by 2019 that wasn't the case for a lot of, a lot of people. So that letter was an important statement, um, and it made everyone feel good. One thing that uh, was uh, Harvard Law School subsequently uh, did a study of the signatories, and only 2% of the signatories of the BRT letter had gotten board approval to sign. All the CEOs signed, only 2% board approval. And, you know, when I thought about it, there there were two reasons for that. Either they just didn't think it was important. And it was just a greenwashing exercise. And Jamie Dimon called them and they signed. And it didn't matter. Or they read it and they said, actually, this is what we do. Customers, employees, communities. And I mean, and I think there's a viable argument that that's what good companies have always done. I mean, there's the 1950-ish Credo by Robert Wood Johnson. That's now inscribed in granite in the lobby of J J. Not that J and J is perfect. Guess what? Nobody's perfect, but they had a credo, and it goes something like: Our first obligation is to our patients who need our products. Our second obligation is to the nurses and doctors who give our products to customers. Our third is to the communities that allow us to function. And our fourth is to provide a reasonable return to shareholders. So that's kind of a stakeholder model. Right. And so it's not really new, but, but in the 80s, darling St. Milton created this idea that the purpose of a company was to create profit. And then in the 80s, we drove into that. So by driving into that, a lot of bad things happened. A lot of bad things happened for workers. Um, From, you know, I'm a baby boomer, right? So from from 1945 to 1979, worker productivity was growing at 100%. Wages, same period, they were growing like 90%. Stock market grew 600%. That was kind of a nice world until 1979. In comes Milton Friedman, in comes Harvard Business School, teaching everybody how to uh, increase your margins offshore, your production, get rid of, of uh, training programs, this and that. And then, so the following period, what happens to workers? Workers have, during 79 to 2020, 80% productivity growth, 18% wage growth, and the stock market's up 800%. Yep. So things really went wrong, and that's why the BRT <coughs> acted. Okay. So, so, sorry, that was yeah. a long answer yeah, to no, a short no, no. question.
0: Dan, let's have you, uh, <laughs> but let's have you uh, step in on, on one of the last things Lynn said there, which was about wage growth. And I know that uh, you have done some, some, you have made some bold moves in this area. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say um, Lynn's opening remarks were right on it. I think capitalism is a great system, but it clearly needs an upgrade. Um, too many people are left out of um, the system. They struggle to make ends meet every single month. They don't believe in the American dream anymore um, because they can't imagine that their kids will do better uh, or have a better future than they do. Um, And consequently, when somebody feels the system is not working for them, they tend to radicalize in one way or another. They tend to um, think about um, the far right or the far left um, and associating, not that they necessarily agree with that, but they don't like what it is right now. And so I think um, this idea of, of capitalism needing an upgrade is really about how do we strengthen our economy, strengthen our democracy by thinking more broadly as corporations and um, to your specific question, I think the number one constituency that I represent um, is my employees, because everything flows from there. Like if I have great employees that are passionate, that are enthusiastic, that don't wanna leave PayPal, believe in our mission, they'll serve customers better. Um, And if we serve customers better, regulators are happy, um, government officials are happy, shareholders over the medium term are happy. And so I think like, you need to put things in order of priority because we have multiple constituencies that we serve as uh, companies and as CEOs. And my view um, was an investment in our employees is probably the single most impactful investment I can make Uh, in the company more so than putting out a marketing program, that return on investment will be much bigger. And there, that was, first of all, figuring out how do we measure how financially healthy our um, employees are. People talk about minimum wage, but minimum wage is not good enough because a minimum wage may be good in one part of the country, And that same minimum wages falls far short in another part of the country where living standards are higher. And in different parts of the world, that's clearly the case. And so we put into place a a metric, we called it net disposable income, which looks at how much money does an employee have after all of their essential living expenses, taxes, housing, food. And what we found, which was surprising, which is why I say capitalism needs an upgrade, PayPal pays at or above market in every market that we pay. We're a tech company. We pay extremely well. For almost half our population, their net disposable income was between 4 and 6%. That's all they had left over after all their essential living expenses. And we work with academia and nonprofits. And the minimum that somebody needs to feel financially healthy, financially secure, is 20%. And so we slashed the cost of healthcare benefits by almost 70%. We gave everybody in the company equity. We raised um wages. We put in place a financial education program so that, you know, we could start to move towards 20%. And today, um we are we went from 4 to 6%, we're now between 15 and 18% NDI and um uh, with our goal firmly set on 20%. Okay.
0: Um, thank you. Let's, uh, wow. okay. Uh, let's talk just for a minute about um, just some of the backlash that we've seen to the idea of stakeholder capitalism, ESG, inclusive capitalism. Um, you know, we have uh, just today, there's a story in DealBook about, about this. Um, there's a story almost every, every day about this these days. Um, some uh, have recently moved to block uh, state fund managers from considering ESG factors in their portfolios um, but this backlash has been building for a while so um, I'd love to hear from both of you about sort of when you first started to, to, to feel it and and I don't mean necessarily going back to Milton Friedman in the 80s when, when all these ideas that were that this that these ideas are meant to sort of be an antidote to took place but more recently um, since the the, the business roundtable statement um, Talk a little bit about the dynamic um, in, in the politics of our country and the sort of uh, the degree to which opponents of stakeholder capitalism have become emboldened uh, in recent months, years.
1: And me? Um, Whichever one? I'll start then. Then we'll uh, no doubt add uh, a lot more color um, to uh, to my statement. But I would say, look, we live in an extremely divisive country right now, there is no way that any of us who have major consumer brands can avoid the culture wars. There's no way. You can't have a set of values that you lead your company by without having people who disagree with those set of of values. I mean, I could say that air is good for you and 5% of you will disagree with me for sure. i like, so untrue, water is way more important, you know, whatever it is. I mean, yep. like, it's just, no matter what you say, people get upset uh, by it. And, but that does not obviate your need to live to your set of values as a company, if values are just words on a wall, Then you may as well not have them, because then it's just propaganda, and people, you know, think that you're just, you know, you're just, you're you're not true to what you uh, what you stand for, and it is incredibly hard to go and do that. Like the first thing I remember when we did this is when we withdrew from North Carolina because of this House Bill Two, that had been passed. That in my reading of House Bill Two, it allowed for. Uh, discrimination based on someone's sexual orientation or sexual identity. And I just felt that was like anathema to the values of PayPal. And we decided not um, to expand uh, into North Carolina. It became front page news of the the New York Times. Um, It was very lonely for a while. The afternoon of when we announced that in the morning, um, I started receiving death threats. I couldn't even go into a, a bathroom without security for searching in there. Um, and I realized just how divided our country was. There was a, a time not that long ago where I had to talk to my kids that, with the amount of threats that were happening, that if something ever happened to me, um, that they should know that this is the things that I wanted to go do, um, and you know I don't think about it to tell you the truth much. It's like a little like gravity, you know. There are always going to be threats out there. You're always going to take a stand, and people are going to um, be upset. And we get hit both from the left and the right all the time, which tells me we're probably doing something right um, in the middle. But it is it is hard for a company like PayPal to police its network to make sure nobody can use PayPal or Venmo to raise money for violent things or um, hatred or racial discrimination, Um, because violence is always coded. Nobody ever says, I'm raising money to kill somebody. They basically say, I wanna send $16.88 to you and 16, is the 16 words of the White Manifesto, in 88 cents is 8-8, which is the eighth letter of the alphabet, which is H, which is HH, which is Heil Hitler. And that's how they code their violence. You need to know all of that. And then you need to think, where does free speech end and hatred begin? And nobody teaches you that in school. You have to be very thoughtful, very thorough, very rational in your decision, always err, I think, on the side of free speech. But you have to make tough choices. And, um, and I think that's our obligation to go and do that. So it is not easy to go and do this. And that is why you don't have everybody uh, do it all the time. Um, but I think if we care about the values of our country, and I think if we care about our democracy, it is essential for business leaders to stand up um, and and advocate for the values that matter to their company and to them.
0: This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com.
2: So then, uh, the answer. Well, but so the answer to the backlash is that we need courageous CEOs like Dan, who know what they stand for and they do what's right, regardless of the backlash. So, um, so that's kind of the ultimate answer. But, but sadly, there aren't there are others, but there are not um, a lot of them, and. Um, I've been involved in this this um, movement to make capitalism work for society so we can keep society um, together, you know, basically since the financial crisis. But when you think, but when I look when I look at the backlash, I put it in two buckets. So there's a backlash to... ESG virtue signaling, ESG greenwashing, mm-hmm. um, and companies that put out glossies but don't do the right thing. So the opposite of Dan, uh, who don't make the right decisions. And I think the backlash, or well, and then and then also there's the whole. Uh, category of Wall Street hijacking ESG as a marketing tool, as a product, slapping a label on it, charging a little bit more. And, you know, there are figures that ESG is referred to in, you know, in connection with $73 trillion of assets under management. There are 800 and some odd mutual funds you can take with ESG. So, um, I think that is bad, Uh, and I think Gary Gensler is correct to try to make asset managers disclose. When you put ESG (coughs) on as an asset manager, what are you doing? What conversations are you having with Dan to show what Dan is doing and to satisfy yourself, what people are doing on the S, which Dan is the best in the world, and the E. Uh, and, and the G's. So I think those criticisms are fair. But then the, the horrible thing that's happened is just the politicalization of it, of making uh, making behavior that tries to make our society better a political act. And that's just really bad news. And that's where I think the solution is brave, brave CEOs who will say, I'll take the punishment if there is any. Great. Thank you.
0: what is the right way to do ESG investing beyond some of the things that you've just said? So, what are, what are things that um, that that uh, people in your world, for example, um, do that stand out to you as as the model for it? And then, if you could expand just a little bit more about some of the things that you see that that make you uh, <laughs> that, that that really make you roll your eyes, or even worse.
2: <laughs> um, so, at Inclusive Capital Partners, we are really focused on on the impact companies have um, on people and planet. And so we start with a value proposition. We're looking for stuff that's cheap. And then we're looking for companies that are, are going to become more valuable by taking care of people and planet. And that's what we think ESG should be. Um, so essentially, if you're not engaged with a company as much on what their impact is as you are with respect to their financial performance, then you're not doing anything differently and you're not changing capitalism. So our view of system change is where those those metrics around how you treat your people and how you treat your planet uh, become as important as the financials because they, like Dan said, they they drive the financials over the long term because your satisfied employees, your customers who are loyal to you, your community who can't, you know, won't live without you, that will be long-term value accretive. But I think the way to do ESG is through engagement, to answer your question. And I think if we have to do it on some passive way, I think Gary Gensler's new regulation requiring managers to disclose how they analyze different sectors is really important. But BlackRock sent in an opposition because they said, what we do for ESG is proprietary. I think that's baloney. It's it's not proprietary.
0: Okay. Dan, um, you talked a little bit about some of the, the consequences of speaking out. I'd love to ask you about um, how do you decide which issues to speak out about? Um, there's a lot of things you can speak out about, right? I mean, y- y- you know, you probably don't choose every one. So when you are thinking about this, when you're thinking about PayPal's values, your own personal values, um, and just the sort of choices that you make, w- what's the process there? How do you, how do you think about that?
1: Uh, well, we dedicate a lot of resource resources. Um, uh, to this, actually, um, because you want to make decisions based on a set of values that are aligned with your mission as a company. You, you want to, I think, try to stay away from political um, decisions. Like our mission as a company is to, you know, have financial services to be as inclusive as possible so that um, managing and moving money isn't just something for the more affluent, but can be done by those that are less affluent as well. And inclusive to me is kind of the thing that drives us as a company. And therefore, you know, our values predominantly center around The fight against any kind of discrimination. Um, And then, um, um, and so then we try to be very um, consistent with that, but not knee jerk reaction. And I think, I always say this, uh, you know, I was speaking in front of um, uh, a number of um, uh, special forces operators, gold medal families who had lost somebody uh, in action. And we're having this kind of conversation. Uh, I saw this one gentleman in like the third row, and he did not like any of this. Like his arms were like this when I was talking about North Carolina, and and um, and then I basically said that our decision making, we try to not have it be red or blue, but like the values of red, white, and blue, like like disc- like fighting against discrimination is what our country is about. And, um, and I said, you know, like all of you do that yourselves. You fight for, for this country. You fight for a set of values. We may have different values, but we, but we have values together. And, um, and I saw him slowly start to uncross his arms. Like he didn't get up and give me a standing ovation like everyone else did, but he, but he wasn't booing and, yeah. and I, he wasn't gonna attack me at the end, which I thought was good as well. Um, and, um, but, um, but I think um, we try to be very thoughtful on all of these things. Um, Franz, who's sitting right here uh, and a couple of others, we have a, a group um, from both marketing and our compliance and our risk and our brand reputation. And we look at everything that comes up in depth. Like when somebody has a website, like it could be Proud Boys or somebody like that, you have to go into the website. You have to link into the videos. You have to see the videos. You have to see where they link to to see, like the website itself could be innocuous, but the stuff that's underneath it could be quite disturbing. And, um, and so um, we spend a lot of time, and we know when we're going to take down um, a, uh, a pretty public uh, website from using us to, to fundraise, um, that there's gonna be backlash uh, on that. But at least I think everybody in the company, and not everybody in the company, by the way, has the same set of values either. We're like 35,000 people across the world. It's, it's a whole set of great different perspectives. And that is part of the strength of, uh, of PayPal. Um, but we're very consistent on how we act, and people expect that of us. And, uh, and we try very hard to uh, not get engaged with everything. Like, you know, uh, you know even though I'm very uh, concerned about, you know, this kind of species, you know, going out of existence, stuff that isn't stuff that we get involved. In. It's not part of our mission as a, as a company. So it needs to align with our mission and our values. If it does, though, we will be involved.
0: A slightly different situation, but you uh, just made an announcement uh, regarding the Phoenix Suns owner, Robert Sarver, who was just uh, punished by the NBA for, uh, based on his behavior that was detailed in a report that just came out, um, racist comments, other things that had happened over the period of, I believe, a decade or so. Um, He uh, was fined, uh, I believe it was $10 million and banned for a year. Uh, you issued a statement, PayPal issued a statement. Um, can you tell us about that statement and what, and, uh, what went into the thinking behind it?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> Again, we try to be very thoughtful about it. Um, I spoke with Adam Silver, you know, the NBA commissioner. Um, <clears throat> I spoke with a team. Um, people on the team, uh, we had conversations with a lot of them, we're quite close with the team, Um, and they've made a lot of strides in general um, to have um, a very inclusive management and uh, uh, an ownership structure. Um, But um, Robert's remarks and um, his pattern behavior were such that, we felt like if he came back to the team, that we could not continue our sponsorship uh, of the Suns. We have a lot of respect for the team, a lot of respect for what they've done. That's why we're not pulling our sponsorship uh, immediately. Um, but if Robert does come back, then then we will. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Um,
0: Lynn, you've been honest uh, in some of your public statements and your writings, acknowledging that from a strictly financial point of view, there can be short-term pain and even potentially long-term pain in taking ESG seriously. Uh, The returns come in other forms, not just financial, but of course um, not not everyone cares about the other kinds of return. Um, The the people that are still Friedman disciples. Um, Maybe they pretend to, they don't really. Maybe they're somewhere in between. Um, over the years that you've spent spreading uh, the word of inclusive capitalism, um, what have you learned about overcoming that kind of resistance from the people who just don't value the goals um, of ESG um, really at all? Can, can these folks be reached? And if so, how?
2: Well, well first of all, we, we are talking about capitalism. So financial returns are really critical. There has got to be profit and there has got to be return in what we do. Um, so our, our belief is that capital, first of all, needs to be long term. Most institutional capital is, is investing for you know, pension funds and college endowments and foundations. Um, and I remember being uh, at a meeting with a big pension fund uh, that's invested with us, and I just wanted to see the way they operated. And the CEOs and the management, they were all up on stage. And this 30-year-old woman stood up and um, she said, I want you to invest in companies that are creating the kind of world I want to retire into. and. That kind of says it all. I and mean, that's how we want our investments. They have to return financially. So what I call um, issues around uh, how people treat their workers, how people treat their planet, is I, I often say they're not yet financial. But they will be financial, um, because if you if you lose your customers, your employees or your community, you're you're not going to exist. Spoke before about the J&J credo. There's a great book by Roger Martin called um, Fixing the Game. And if you like the NFL, not the NBA, but anyway, he uses the NFL as his uh, metaphor uh, for this book, and he contrasts uh, J and J's financial performance, with their credo, to uh, Jack Welch and General Electric, and Jack Welch n- never missed a quarterly projection. Like in, so, like from from 1981 till 2001, he never missed one. J and J stock and GE stock performed the same. Through, same IRR during that period, but. After Jack was there, <coughs> GE is down 80%, J&J is up 130%. So those short-term measures that Jack Welsh took to create shareholder value didn't, didn't work out so well for the long term. So I have no apology about believing... Importance in investing in companies that truly have a purpose. I think Dan was absolutely right to start with the, the mission and the purpose of a company, and then stay, making sure your customers understand it, your employees understand it, so there are no surprises out there. Everything is aligned with the business purpose, and then you also have the financial return. So to me, it's not an either or. It's a little bit of a time horizon. Uh, issue in some cases. And if a company is on, you know, if a company is on fire, you can't start talking about, you know, long term, long term plans, you have to put out the fire, you have to fix the company, it has to be financially relevant. And then you have the luxury um, of being a long term company.
1: Right. I, I couldn't agree more with what Lynn said, like this idea that profit and purpose work against each other is ridiculous. Um, it, to Lynn's point, there may be a timing issue, but if you don't have a purpose as a company, then you will sub-optimize shareholder return over the medium to the long uh, term. I, I firmly believe the best route to maximizing shareholder return is by having a purpose as a company um, and because you attract the very best employees, when you attract the very best employees, you serve customers better than anybody else. Um, and then that leads to increased loyalty, better revenues, all the things that shareholders are looking for for a company. Increasingly, those shareholders are looking for more as well. They realize that if we live in a divided country, if we have a country of haves and have not, That is not good for our economy. It is not good uh, for our democracy that um, does not bode well over the uh, medium to long term for any company. It's easy to maximize profits next quarter. It's easy to go do that. You cut back on certain things, you do that. That may satisfy some shareholders, but the vast majority of shareholders are thinking about and are giving you multiples based on what do they think that your long-term growth opportunities are about? And so I, I think um, um, Lynn is right. If it's a very difficult time, you need to focus on the fundamentals of your business. You can't, uh, you can't be a, uh, um, a profitable company that's not profitable. Right? That's like not gonna happen. Uh, over the long run. You can't be impactful if that's the case. Um, but I am this firm believer that, um, that having a sense of mission, a sense of values uh, over the medium and long term uh, maximizes shareholder return. Let's end there. That is a perfect way to stop
0: <laughs> Dan Schulman, Linda Fourth for the last file. Thank you very much.